0: But we are blessed today to continue through our study, through the exposition of the book of Romans. We're blessed because we have a Bible, first of all, that we, we can even read, thanks to the Reformation. We're also blessed that there's a group of people in this area that wanted to gather together to form a church, to work and serve in the church, so that we can look at the Word of God, so that we can gather and worship God Through the Spirit in us, through his word which he's given to us. And we're looking at the book of Romans. We've been considering what Paul is trying to just say in his introduction. What's the most important thing for Paul in this first paragraph of his letter? Much of what we're learning here will be opened up. Almost every idea, every theological concept will be opened up somewhere in the letter. Sometimes for a couple of paragraphs. Sometimes he'll take certain issues and spend two chapters on it. And what we're seeing here in Paul's opening verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1 is he's letting them know who he is. And then verse 6 and 7, he's saying who they are. And often we don't understand who we are as Christians. So this is not something we want to skip over. You don't, don't, don't read your Bible and just skip these introductions, these salutations in the letters. It's important for us to see what God is trying to teach us here. So I want to read this whole paragraph to you so you can get the context of what we've already covered. I'm going to start in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant or slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, "...who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ." To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever really thought about who the church is? Not what is the church. That's an important question as well. But who is the church? Who are we? How would you describe your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church? Not their personalities, not whatever sins that you might have seen them commit, not even necessarily their godliness. But as a group, how would you describe in a biblical manner the church, this church? Many people think the church is a building and we're blessed to have a building. We're blessed to be able to meet and not get rained on or, or be cold. That's not really a church. That's just the building we meet in. The church is made up of the people. And even if people understand that, even if we all understand the church is made up of the people, sometimes we think, well, we assemble together as a church because of blank, baptism. Because of the Lord's Supper. Because of our theology. Because of our view of Scripture. Because of our love for Christ. And all of those are true. All of those are true. But Paul wants to zero in. He wants to focus on certain aspects of who we are as a church And he wants to tell the Romans, the Roman Christians, who they are as a church. And he's just going to do it with rapid fire statements. Sometimes one word, one word. And he wants to let us know who we are as Christians. This letter applies to us just as much as it did to the first century Romans. We can't say this is merely historical and look at it as a historical document and say it doesn't apply to us today. Every word here applies to us, except one, and that's the word Rome, because we're not in Rome today. But the way you interpret scripture is to look at what he's saying to them and then see how it applies to us. We have to first ask how did it apply to them, and then we apply it to us. The meaning of scripture, that's most important, and then we think about the application. Now, Paul has already told us that he's been appointed by Christ to be an apostle, To be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to take the gospel out to the nations. Not just the Jews. There are other apostles that are uh, evangelizing the Jews. Paul's going to take this out to the Gentiles. To the nations. To the Romans. To the Greeks. To the barbarians. And so he told us right away in verse 1 who he is. And then he went into the gospel that he preaches. And you noticed in in verses 3, 4, and 5. This is not a gospel of how good you feel or how awesome you'll be or how blessed you'll be. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. The gospel is about a person. The gospel is about Jesus, primarily who he is and also what he has done. The gospel is about Jesus. And Paul says, I'm going to preach Jesus. I'm going to preach the good news. And I'm going to bring people to the obedience of faith. Is Paul going to do that though? Or is it God working through the message? And that's what he's going to go into now in these last couple of verses of that first paragraph. He's going to describe who we are in five different descriptions. But we're going to see over and over that it's actually God doing the saving. It's God changing the hearts. It's God bringing people to that obedience of faith that Paul says he's going out to proclaim the gospel for the purpose of obedience, of faith among the Gentiles. Paul is now going to describe that. He's going to give us five descriptions. And we need to know these because it applies to us. It describes us. It describes this church. If you are a believer in Christ here today, these should describe you. So as we go through these five points, as we go through these descriptions... First of all, ask yourself, is this me? Does this fit my life? And then ask yourself, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? If these fit me, then how should that encourage me to live? How should that encourage me to pray? How should that correct me in my life and in my thinking? All of those questions we'll look at along the way. The first description here of the five is that he says the church belongs to Christ. This is in verse 6. It's all of verse 6. The church belongs to Christ. Notice he starts out by saying, Among whom you also. Again, one flowing sentence from verse 1 all the way down through verse 7. And this verse 6 hangs on what came before it. He said, I'm going out. I'm going to proclaim the good news for the purpose of the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. And now he says, among whom? Among all the Gentiles, among all the people... Out there that aren't Jews. He says you also. I'm going to proclaim the gospel to you also. The church in Rome is among all those Gentiles. That Paul is preaching to. Even though they're Christians that he's writing to. The gospel should be preached to Christians. We ought to remember the truth of the gospel. We need to hear the gospel preached. And opened up and applied in our life. And Paul says that's what I'm coming for. I'm coming to preach the gospel to you. And I'm going to start by the letter that I'm writing you right here. And even though he's never been there, he says that they are primarily a Gentile church. Often there's a debate how many Jews are in the church, how many Gentiles are in the Roman church here. Well, there's more Gentiles than Jews because he says, among whom you are also, among all the Gentiles, you're a part of that Gentile group. And I have authority is what he's implying. Paul has authority over them. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. That's the reason he's addressing them. That's the reason he's going to visit them. That's the reason he wrote this letter. And he says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. More important than their ethnicity. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. More important than that though is their spiritual family. Their spiritual family, he says, you're the called of Jesus Christ. That's the NASB. ESV is even better. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's the meaning here. You're called by God to belong to his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, you belong to Christ if you're a Christian, he's saying. You belong to Jesus. You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to the pagan gods. You don't even belong to another person, even though he's writing to people that would include slaves in this group. Primarily, you belong to Christ. You're the called of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's bought us. He's redeemed us. We're his. You remember back in verse 1, Paul said, I'm a slave. That's the literal wording there. Slave of Christ Jesus. I've been bought with a price. I'm owned by Jesus. He is my master. That's what Lord means. It means he's our master. If we call him Lord, then he is our master. And now every follower of Jesus has had their sins atoned for because of Christ. That redemption, that death on the cross, atoned for your sins if you're a believer here today. And he's purchased for you forgiveness and eternal life. That's what it means to belong to Christ. He bought us. I mean, what a wonderful, kind, gracious master he is. We often don't like the idea of slave-master relationship, even to describe Christianity. It's why so many translations say things like servant and bond But yet, we are his. He does own us. And we call him Lord and Master. So what better language than the language of the Bible here? We belong to him, is the idea. He owns us. That's not a bad thing if it's the Lord Jesus Christ. If it's another human being, sure, we don't want that. We want to fight against that. But we certainly love the Lord Jesus Christ to be our master. And if you're a Christian, you want to be his slave. You are his slave. Christ didn't only die for us though on the cross. He was raised again into new life on the third day. So we belong to him. We get All the things that he gives to us. He gives us forgiveness of sins. He gives us eternal life. And he gives us a resurrection from the dead. Now we don't have that yet. He does. He was resurrected from the dead. He had a perfect body when he was resurrected. And still does today. But because we belong to him. We get all of these wonderful benefits. Including resurrection from the dead. You know there's a lot of talk today about ethnicity and skin color and who's done what to whom and what our grandfathers and great grandfathers did in this country and in all ethnicities around the world. But Jesus here, through the Apostle Paul says, the most important thing is that you belong to Christ. It's not your ethnicity. It's not your skin color. The most important thing is are you in Jesus Christ? Do you belong to him? All of that Fighting back and forth about who's done what to whom doesn't get us anywhere. Sure, politicians love it. They can be elected into office as a result of much of it. But Paul says, you in Rome, you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the emperor. Not your family members by the flesh. But primarily, you belong to Christ. The first point we just need to ask, are we thankful that we do belong to Christ? Or do we identify more with our favorite group? Or more with our blood relatives? Your primary identity is that you belong to Christ. And as much as you should love your family, and the Bible says you should love your blood relatives, your adopted relatives, your in-laws, it says we belong to Christ. And that's the very first thing he says about them in this letter. You're called of Jesus Christ. You're under my authority, obviously he's saying, but primarily you're the called of Jesus. When your friends, when your family reject your beliefs, when they persecute you, when they laugh at you for your beliefs and your Christianity, when your boss and coworkers say all of these mean things about your faith, Remember this, you belong to Christ. It doesn't matter what they say. You belong to Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul says, not only are they belonging to Christ and are we belonging to Christ today, but he says they're loved by God. They're loved by God. Now he's going to back up because he said you belong to Christ, but now he's going to give us a really quick survey of how that happens. And he's going to do it In three words. Look at verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome. Who's he writing to? To those who are beloved. Or if you like the King James, beloved. To the beloved. Christians who make up the church in Rome. That's who he's writing to. He's not writing to all the one to four million Romans. He's not saying every pagan person in Rome is beloved of God. There is a a love that God has for the whole world. It's his creation. But this is more than that. Paul's using this term to describe the church there in Rome. The Christians who make up the church in Rome are the beloved of God. What he's pointing to and what he's going to open up later, especially in chapters 8 and 9, is this idea of God's love being the primary reason that we're even saved. God's covenant love. Our salvation, in other words, starts with God's love, not anything in us. He's already starting to lay that out in order here. It's like John said in 1 John four nineteen: we love because he first loved us. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. Where does this idea of beloved come from? Where does that come from? It comes from the fact that God first loved us. Let's just look at a few verses here on this idea of God's love being the first thing that God does for our salvation. Ephesians 1.4. And if we look here at Ephesians, it's a very similar opening, but much shorter, of course, than Romans. And Paul here is starting right away with some deep doctrine. He doesn't say, you know, you Christians can't handle deep doctrine, so I'm going to wait until my final letter that I ever write to give you in-depth doctrine. No, he, he's given them the salutation in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus. Then he says who he's writing to, the saints who are in Ephesus. Now look at verse 4. He's already said, blessed be the God and Father in, in verse 3. And he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Not just before you were born, but before God ever created anything. It says that he chose us. He chose believers. He chose a people. But let's continue here. He says that we would be holy and blameless before him. And then there's a period and a new sentence starts. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. What does it mean to be beloved? Well, it means if you're a Christian here today, if you're truly born again, it means that God loved you long before you were ever created. Long before he created the world. Long before the foundation of the world he chose. He put his electing love on you. That shouldn't be a doctrine that we are running away from, that we're angry at. It's always presented as God's grace, as God's love. This predestination, a lot of people struggle with that theology. But it's simply saying that God loved you before you loved Him. That you would have never loved God if He hadn't loved you first. It's why Paul puts it in the front of the list. Election simply means God the Father chose to put His special electing love on some before the creation of all things. God's plan in eternity past to save sinners, in other words. We saw it there in Ephesians One, let's look at it some more in Romans. Go to Romans chapter eight, and this is where Paul begins to open up this doctrine some more Romans 8 29. And he starts off by saying, For those whom he foreknew, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So, part of the predestination, right before that, even, is the idea that God foreknew. The same group of people that he would predestine. Now, it doesn't say God knew what you would think, what you would say, what you would do. It's a special word there that means he foreknew in a close personal relationship. Foreknowledge might be better thought of as foreloved. Foreloved. The idea of a close, personal, intimate love. Now, where is that, pastor? Are you just inserting thoughts into the language here? Well, if you've read the whole Bible and you read various verses, you know that the word know is used to mean a close personal relationship. In fact, the closest relationship you can have as husband and wife is often how it's used. So know in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament, following the old, can often mean more than just simple knowledge. It means a close relationship. Given the context of the passage. Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife. Did Adam just have knowledge of Eve? Is that what it means? Adam knew Eve his wife in what? She conceived and bore Cain. What is he talking about in Genesis 4.1? The intimacy, physical intimacy. So close, so intimate that the word knew is used there. Not, not to protect modern hearers or children's ears when they read the passage. No, that's the original language there. It's expressing how close that relationship is. He fully knew her and they conceived. Matthew one twenty five, Speaking of Joseph and Mary. Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Now that's actually not the literal Greek behind give birth to a son. That's been translated to help us see what's going on. Uh, the ESV is more literal here. Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He did not know her in a physical, sexual way until after she had given birth to Jesus. Again, this idea of no being a very close, covenantal love that's expressed in marriage here. Uh, Luke 1: Luke When Mary speaks to the angel, she doesn't understand what the angel is saying to her. And she says to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Again, more literal. How can this be since I have never known a man? So what I'm trying to tell you is that the word no often means in context, of course, we've got to read the context. It means a close relationship, a close, loving, personal, intimate relationship. Or two people know each other as fully as two people can know each other. So for now, if we go back to Romans 8.29, what does it mean that God foreknew? It means that he foreloved. It means to be foreknown by God or to be beloved of God, as Paul says at the beginning of the book. It's not based on God looking in the future. It's not based on God looking down the corridors of time. God's outside of time. God sees all things that have happened, are happening, and will happen. God doesn't learn anything by looking around into the future. God knows what's gonna happen because the Bible says He decrees all things that happen. To be foreknown means to be for love, to be loved first by God. He knows all things, and in all things in time are before Him, but that's not what He's looking at. He's for loving, for ordaining all that will come to pass, including your salvation if you're a believer. Again, this should give you comfort. This should give you comfort. If God loved me before I was ever even created, before the world was created, that has all kinds of implications. It was God's doing, not mine. I can't lose that salvation. It was God who loved me. He will protect me and persevere me through my life. One commentator Haldane from the 1800s, a great preacher of the word. He says, here then is the electing love of God. Right in the beginning of Romans. Romans 1.7. Here is the electing love of God. placed first in order. It is purely grace and does not spring from foresight of anything worthy and those who are its objects. If God looked forward and saw what we were going to choose and then rewarded us for that. That's works based. That's works based. It doesn't spring from us. Ultimately, it springs from God. And if you've read through Ephesians, you see this over and over in that book as well. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy. He's just gone through in chapter 2 telling us that we are sinful, that we are wicked, that we are evil. And we didn't care about God. Then it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Why did God save us? Because of His great love, which He loved us. Not because we're so awesome. Not because we're so great. But He loved us out of His own heart. Not because of anything we've done. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Even when we were sinners running from God, rebelling against Him. Doing all that we could. All that we could to deny the truth that God has revealed to us. It says He loved us. And made us alive together with Christ. Do you see the order there in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5? We're sinners. Then God loved us. And that's even saying it happened way in the past. Because Paul's already covered that in Ephesians 1. And he loved us. And then he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul's saying it's all of grace. It's all of grace. You Christians in Rome, you are the Beloved. God chose to set his love upon you. I don't think the Romans read that and got upset. I don't think they wanted to have a debate about free will. I don't think they wanted to have a debate about predestination. I think they said, praise the Lord. He loved me. And I was a wicked pagan worshiping the false gods of Rome. And now I'm sitting here with all these Christians in this little church in Rome. Everybody hates us. But I'm here because God loved me first. You can say amen to that. Now, he starts with that, but look at the next thing right after that. This is the third description. The church in Rome is not only belonging to Christ, is not only the beloved by God, but they're also divinely called. And this is why I say that it's God's love in eternity past that we're talking about here, because the very next thing is called. And then we'll see saints as the last of these three in order here. Divinely called. Just one word here, called. He's already mentioned in verse 6, the called of Jesus Christ. Now he comes back to it again. It's so important he mentions called again in verse 7, right after loved by God. It's so important that he'll talk about called all throughout Romans. Now it's important we stop here and differentiate between the types of callings mentioned in the Bible. There's two main types of callings. We're not talking about the callings where somebody calls you your name. If they say Michael to me, they're calling out my name. That's not what we're looking at here. That does come up occasionally in Scripture. We're talking about the two types of callings mentioned in the Bible with regards to salvation. There's one call that goes out to everybody. That's a vocal call. That's a public call. That's a preacher. That's Paul preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. It's an external call. It goes out. People hear it and respond. Or they read it and they respond one way or the other. They either believe or they don't believe. This is Jesus saying in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say just the beloved of God, just the elect, just the predestined. No, he just calls out to everyone. And he's Jesus and he knows who's going to come. But he sends out the external call. The gospel call, we might say. The general call. It's when you and I go out, we proclaim the gospel. It's a free offer of the gospel. Whoever hears this and responds with faith and repentance and comes to Christ will be saved. But Jesus also says, many are called, but few are what? Chosen. What does he mean by that? Many are called, but few are chosen. The general call goes out to many people. But the ones that come are the ones who are chosen. Not because they're special. Not because they did all these great works. But because God has chosen them out of his great love. And what we call that, theologically, is effectual calling. And that's what Paul is basically saying here. called, The ones who've been called. God saved his elect through the divine act of summoning them to come to Christ. So the external call goes out. It's a preacher preaching the gospel. It's you telling your friend the gospel. It's a Bible study proclaiming what the Bible says about the gospel. But the internal call, the divine call, that is God sending a call directly to your heart. That is God changing your heart. That's what Paul's talking about here. Paul doesn't talk at all about the general call. You do see that in the gospels. You do see Jesus saying many are called. But when Paul looks back to what Christ has done for us, he talks about the divine calling. It's specific. It's personal. And it's always successful. The general call goes out. Preacher doesn't even know who believed and who didn't. He could go home thinking no one did. And maybe that's the case. When God divinely calls you, everybody God divinely calls will come to him. It's a divine call. It's a change of heart. It's a new creation. It's a new life. It is regeneration. And it always succeeds. It's a sovereign summons that results in salvation. So the way you know you've been called is if you're actually a believer. If you turn from your sins. If you trusted in Christ. Paul says you're the call. You don't walk around with a C on your forehead. Or like Spurgeon said, an E for Election. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher who preached to thousands, believed this. And he said, you know, it'd be nice if God put an E on everybody's head because we just preached to them. But he didn't do that, so we preached to everybody because we don't know who the called are, who the elect are, who the predestined are. It's not up to us. We don't get to decide that. That's God's prerogative. That's God's perspective. God knows. We don't know. Here's how the uh, London Baptist Confession, a Reformed Confession, Here's how it describes effectual calling. The divine summons, the divine call. Now listen closely. All those whom God hath predestined unto life. This is way back in 1689 this was written. All those whom God hath predestined unto life. And those only he has pleased and has appointed and accepted time effectually to call. How does he do that? It goes on to say by his word and spirit. Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature. So he calls us out of our sin by changing our hearts. We respond to the call. We're no longer in sin and death, in the realm of sin and death. He calls us, it says, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And now it describes how that happens. Enlightening their minds, spiritually and savingly, to understand the things of God. Read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 later, and you'll see how Paul talks about The natural man doesn't have the ability to accept the things of God. But the spiritual man does. The one who's been born again, the one who's been called, suddenly can accept the things of God. Their mind has been renewed. Their heart has been renewed. This confession goes on to say, taking away their heart of stone. We have a stony heart. When God saves us, what does it say in Ezekiel? He takes the stony heart out and replaces it with a true heart heart a fleshly heart Uh, the metaphor is a heart that will believe a heart that will repent and it goes on to say giving unto them a heart of flesh renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good effectually drawing them to Jesus yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace when the call goes out by God everyone comes and nobody comes kicking and screaming why because our hearts been changed Our mind has been changed. We didn't know it at the time. God didn't send a big message and put it in the sky. We just suddenly believed, and we turned from our sins. And now Paul says, looking back, here's what actually happened. Do you remember when you were born? Do you know how that process occurred? But you can look back, and you can hear that from your parents. You've probably heard stories, maybe, about how you were born. That's what Paul is doing when he uses... Terms like election, calling. He says, "Look back and see the great things God has done for you." It's a sovereign summons. Well, that's nice that it's in the London Baptist Confession of 1689, but it isn't in the Bible. Well, it is. I'll give you a hint. It is uh, again Romans 8. Let's go back to Romans 8. This is where Paul opens up this idea of calling, election, predestination. Romans 8:28, and we know that God causes. All things to work together for good to those who love God. So who are those who love God? To those who are called according to his purpose. To those God has called. They're the ones who love God. They're the believers. They're the ones that God will make sure all things work together for good. Everything that happens, even sin, even evil, will work together for good. Now skip down to verse 30. And it says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Now again, Paul's laying out an order here. There's the foreknowing, the foreloving, and then there's the predestining. And then there is the called in the next step. He called them according to his purpose. Not our purpose. We didn't make God call us. We are not divinely calling ourselves or forcing God to do anything. He called us. He did it. Paul says, And this is supposed to be a joy for us. In other words, it's a golden chain of salvation that he's laying out here in Romans 8.30. And we can't get out of that chain. Praise the Lord. We didn't put ourselves into salvation and we can't take ourselves out of it. Because as John MacArthur says, if we could lose it, we would. We would just go out and sin tomorrow and that's it. We're done. That's what Romans 8 is about. You can't lose your salvation. No matter what comes at you, if you're truly saved, you can't lose it. And one of the reasons, the main reason, is because you're in this chain that God has set up. It's all of God. He's loved. He's predestined. He's called. He's justified. He will glorify. All the same people in that group. This happens in Acts 13 as the apostles are going out and they're preaching. Paul in Acts 13 comes into this city Called Pisidian, Antioch. And it says, When the Gentiles heard the gospel, so they hear the external call, they hear the general call, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Not appointed by Paul, the idea is appointed by God. The call goes out, Paul just shows up and he preaches. And then people start rejoicing because they're saved. Why? The writer of Acts, Luke, tells us, because as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. God has broken down that bondage in their mind and heart. The bondage that's due to sin. The bondage that's due to the blindness that Satan has put over our eyes. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called. But to those who are called by God is the idea. See, we preach to everybody, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The effectual call here means that salvation is all of God. It's all of God. That's a good thing. We don't want any of our salvation to rest on us. It's a good thing. God is perfect. God is good. God is holy. He will protect us, He will protect even our salvation. This is what Jesus said when He said in John 6 44, No one can come to me unless what? The Father who sent me draws him. The word for draw here is not one of entice, it's not one of trick. It's literally one that's used in fishing to mean grab by the net and pull. Not that we're like fish coming, kicking, and screaming to God, but that the power is so strong. That the power to change the heart that God calls us with is so strong that we will indeed come. And Jesus said, no one can even come to me unless that happens first. And then I will raise him up on the last day. We're passive in divine calling. Why are you saved and not your neighbor? That is an unbeliever. Is it because of you? Is it because you're so smart that you chose Jesus? You're so wealthy that you chose Jesus? Or is it because of God who calls? Because of God who saves? The Bible says it's God here. And and thank the Lord that he did this. We would not be saved if he didn't divinely call and even love us first. How can I say that? Well, the Bible tells us over and over that because of sin, we won't come to him. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, that's before the flood, right? Well, you know what it says after the flood? Same thing over and over throughout Scripture. Ecclesiastes 9, 3. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil evil. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives, full of evil and insanity. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Well, that's just in the Old Testament, right? Certainly, people in New Testament times weren't evil and sinful. Romans three eleven: where does Paul go? He's going to go back to the Old Testament. There's none righteous, he says, not even one. There's got to be some good people out there that, that, that choose Christ without God's help. There's none, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. I mean, that really runs a seeker-friendly movement. There's none who seeks for God. That doesn't mean people aren't asking questions about life and wondering what's going on and why these things are happening. It means that no one truly comes to God for His glory until God changes their heart. And when He changes their heart, they come. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's why people aren't able to come to Jesus. Sin has corrupted our minds. Romans 1.21, we'll look at that in a few weeks. Satan has blinded our minds. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and Romans 8, seven. go there. It says we are dead in our sin. This is a key theology, the idea of calling. It's important. Paul's going to go over it and over it in Romans. Romans 8, 7, he's talking here about how the mind of the flesh is set on death. And he says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. I'm going to earn my righteousness with God. That's what people say. And Paul says, look, you can't even do that. You don't even have the ability. Even if you truly desired it and got after it, you can't. You don't have the ability. And look at verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Who are those in the flesh? Those who aren't believers. Those who aren't saved. Those in the spirit are the ones who are saved. Those in the flesh are the unbelievers. If we cannot please God, then God's got to do something first. Satan's blinded us. Sin has held us in bondage. And we're not even able. We don't have the ability to come to God of our own power. Now if you're a Christian here today, give thanks to God for that calling. It's okay to study it. It's okay to want to learn more about it. It's okay to sort of question how I can understand it better. But there's no reason to reject what's right there in scripture. God loves you. If you're his today, that means at one point God has chosen you before the foundation of the world, and you have now been called. And the last one of the list of three Declared holy. So there's, right in the middle of verse 7, there's loved by God, there's called, and then there's the idea of saints. You see, and the NASB here, as is in italics. Meaning they had to smooth it out. I think it's really three things here. Loved, called, saints. What is a saint? Well, we're not talking about the Roman Catholic idea of sainthood, where you do all these things, you do a miracle, and then you become a saint. I know that's how we often hear the term used today. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that they're saints. All the believers in Rome, the church in Rome, they are the saints. He calls them all saints, not just some of them. He doesn't say the saints among you. You're all saints, he says. If you're a believer, you're a saint. Paul's going to use this term saints 38 times in his letters just to simply mean Christians. Eight times in Romans, the saints. Romans 8.27, the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Does the Holy Spirit just intercede for the most holiest people who've ever existed in the Middle Ages called saints? No, He intercedes for all believers. Romans 12.3, Paul speaks of contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Chapter 15, verse 25, I'm going to Jerusalem to serve the saints there, the believers, the church. What does it mean to be a saint? It means that you are declared holy. Now you should be looking at this saying, you know, I'm not holy. I I sinned this morning. I sinned yesterday. I need to be more holy. And that's true. That's called progressive sanctification. That's called working on your holiness, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. But there's also the declaration of who you actually are. You'll eventually be made perfect when you go to glory. But God's already actually declared you holy, set apart, sanctified. Not that you're perfect now, but he's set you apart and given you this name, saints, holy. And he doesn't say we're going to be saints someday in heaven. That's not what Paul says. Saints, where? Where are they at? They're in Rome. Declared holy, set apart for God in this world. Don't think there's no way I can really serve God. There's no way I can be holy in this life. I got to wait till heaven, then I'll be perfect. Well, that is true. You'll be perfect in heaven if you're His. But He's already calling all Christians saints. What's the idea here? Well, He's not talking about behavior, He's talking about status. Our status, our name, our citizenship is. The idea of being set apart, being holy, being a saint. Now think about the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple. All the furniture that they put in there, made of gold, all the decorations that God commanded, those were holy. The priests were holy. The idea is not that the priests never sinned, but that they were set apart to serve God. That's what it means by holy in that context. We as Christians have been set apart. We're not part of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We are still human. We haven't changed our fundamental nature, but God has changed our hearts. Spiritually speaking, we have been changed. And so we are declared saints. And he's greeting them with these terms for a reason. I believe he's put these three in a row here. Loved, called, saints. They happen in that order Paul's saying, Look, you're already set apart for God. Now he's going to later turn around and say, Now go and live a holy life. Renew your mind. Grow in godliness. The last description that he gives is at the very end here. What is a Christian? Well, Christian number five is given spiritual blessings. And again, I see an order here love by God, divinely called, declared holy. Given spiritual blessings. I think verse 7 has an order. 6 is he's jumping ahead saying we belong to Christ. And in verse 7 he goes in an order here. Now he often says grace to you and peace. He often lays out this greeting in almost all of his letters. What does it mean though? Do you just read over it and skip on to the good stuff? Chapter 8, chapter 9 of Romans? No. What is grace? Well, he describes it in Romans 3.24, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we already get the idea that it's a gift from God, that it's a free gift from God. Romans 6.14, you are not under law, but under grace. When Paul says grace to you, he's saying here that you have something special given by God, it's different than the law. It's different than earning something. It's undeserved favor. Undeserved, unearned favor. But not just that. It's also undeserved favor that is the opposite of what you should get. It's not as if we're neutral and Paul says, God gave you grace. No, we were sinners. We were headed to hell. We deserved God's wrath and he gave us exactly the opposite. Grace. And Paul says, more grace to you. You've been saved by grace. And praise the Lord. He's mentioning that here. And he says, may more grace throughout your Christian walk come to you. God's sovereign grace. That's how we're saved. That's how we're sanctified. That's how we'll be glorified. It's all by grace alone. He also says, peace. Shalom in Hebrew. A well-being that comes From the peace that God gives us. It includes every blessing and all the riches God gives us. How does Paul summarize all the blessings that God gives us in Christ? Grace and peace. You have peace with God. Then you have all of these wonderful spiritual blessings mentioned everywhere else in scripture. And notice grace comes first in this list every time Paul says grace to you and peace. Because you got to have God's grace first to get God's peace. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. First we're justified through faith, then we get the peace with God. It all happens instantaneously when you're saved. But you have this grace and peace throughout your life as well. Grace is God's saving work. Peace is the result of God's gracious saving work. We always need to remember the blessings of being in Christ. Grace and peace is a great summary. If somebody said, what has God given you as a Christian? You could say grace and peace, and it summarizes everything that the New Testament teaches we have. But where do these blessings even come from? Well, Paul doesn't want to let another opportunity go by that he can talk about God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think the letter is actually about? The good news. What's the good news? It's about Jesus Christ. He's mentioned God's Son. He's mentioned Jesus. He's mentioned Christ over and over in seven verses that we've already looked at. That's where grace and peace come from. The Lord here is our owner, our sovereign. We've already considered that. We know Jesus is his human name. Christ, his messianic name. It means Messiah. God, our Father. You can't call God Father unless you have Jesus as your Lord. Jesus as your master. The Jews didn't call God Father. The pagans didn't call the true God of the Bible Father. It's only through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that we receive grace and peace. There's no other place to get those things. There's salvation in no one else, the Bible says. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You cannot find grace and peace from some important person in the world. You can't go to Buddha, you can't go to the Pope or pray to Mary to get grace and peace. It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not Muhammad, not Confucius, not just good old Southern deism where you believe that God is there. He's sort of just letting us live a good life and maybe our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds. No, it's Christ. And that makes God our Father when we believe in Christ. He is our Father. And Jesus is our Lord. God's grace and peace is with you, Christians. Walk through your life knowing that. Walk through your life knowing that God's grace and peace is with you. When you have a trial, return to descriptions of who you are. Remember who you are. When when the diagnosis comes, when the family member dies, when you're sick and don't think you're going to make it, when people persecute you, remember who you are. Paul says we belong to Christ. We're loved by God. We're called. We're divinely called. We're saints. And we receive all of these spiritual blessings. Summarized in grace and peace. Let's pray now that God would remind us of that regularly. Sometimes we think we're so wretched, so sinful. And we need to repent of our sin. But we need to remember to take ten looks at Christ for every. Look at ourselves, Lord, I do thank you this morning for your word, for what it means to us, for how it encourages us. Let us remember who we are in Christ, all the blessings, all that you've done to, to save us, oh God, our Father. You haven't left us alone. You haven't abandoned us. You continue to remind us of who we are. So I pray this morning that we would remember it, not just right here in the service, but we would remember it throughout our week, throughout our lives, knowing that Christ is with us and that you've done all of these things for us. We pray this in the matchless name of our King. Amen.